Hello, and welcome to our surrogates all over the world to the latest episode of your favorite podcast, Audience Surrogate. As always, I am Steve Vieira, and I am joined through the magic of telecommunications by my friendly neighborhood co-host, who is today sitting in a massive conference center in Nueva York, 2099. He rarely (laughs) comes with cakes in hand, and he's not exactly my guy in the chair, but of course, he's my reliable co-host, my friendly Matt Gilbert. How's it going, Steve? Pretty good, pretty good. And how are you this week, swinging in to uh, the episode? From Nueva York, pretty good. I- I'm a little insulted that you're saying I'm not the guy in the chair, considering, one, I am literally sitting in a chair right now, and two, all of the technical wizardry that it takes to uh, bring this show to-, to our lovely listeners. You do so much of the heavy lifting, and I am in your debt for unleashing our thoughts onto the world. Whether they asked for it or not. Whether they ask for it or not, but there are surrogates. They're part of us. Yes. They, they share in our thinking and our outlook. And I don't want to make you my sidekick. I don't want you to think that you're trapped off while I'm out here gathering all the glory that you are unsung because you are my peer, my equal. If anything, we are, I don't know, are there any truly great superhero pairs of of true equals of true equals because i feel like you've got the classic batman and robin who are sort of subordinated superhero sidekick absolutely and then what other alliance batman and superman they're often partnered but i would hardly say that's fair despite whatever you know tricks that bruce has up his sleeve somewhere in the dc canon there are two characters called hawk and dove which are basically the same they have very similar costumes i believe they have very similar powers and they're kind of always treated as a bit of a uh, a tag team sort of thing so but that's the only dynamic of equals i can think of are they a romantic couple at all or are they t- i am positive the internet has made them such i watched the titans series on hbo so you're and- the one yeah, I am the one. Well, I didn't watch season four. I held back. I thought about it, but I decided, <laughs> you know what? It's not me. It's them. And uh, <laughs> I stepped away. But in that show, Hawk is played by the Jack Reacher guy, and Dove is Minka Kelly, and they are very much a couple. So that's why I hesitated oh to say Hawk and Dove, not because I don't support it, but because that's my only relationship. And I would say that that's also not an accurate casting of what you and I are doing. No, absolutely not. It's funny. Part of me was going to say it's almost like we're part of a particular meme where one of we're both wearing the same costume and one of us is just kind of thinking like, if I were me, what would I do right now? And and the other is just like, how do I learn from this person? Okay. Now that we've gone on a very long and rambling tangent, uh, including the only mention of Titans to ever come on this podcast, more than likely, let's jump into (laughs) our main feature for the day, which is the latest release in the Spider- man project spider-man across the spider-verse a sequel to 2018's into the spider-verse our latest chapter in the miles morales story where we see him don the mask of spider-man in his home dimension and now his story spills across the pages of the multiverse rendered in beautiful animation and we see him confront not only his enemies but also different versions of himself. And he has to figure out what it means to be Spider-Man. So today we are going to be discussing it. We're going to be going across the spoiler verse. So if you haven't seen it, just be aware that we will be discussing the content of the film, including the ending and what may happen in the future. Uh, So to get started, Gilbert, uh, how'd you feel? How did I feel? Let me see. We, you and I saw it together the movie ended. I think I just turned to you and said, movies. Um, Steve, I loved this movie. Oh my God. I, I am blown away by how much I enjoyed this movie more than I thought I ever could. I do want to point out that you didn't quite capture the essence of your reaction. You said, movies! <laughs> you were more exclamatory. You really couldn't contain how much you were moved by what you had just seen. I, I absolutely could not. I had a big st- 
stupid grin on my face for like I would say at least half the movie. And the entire time I'm sitting there, I'm just thinking, this is pure joy. This is entertainment. This is art. This is everything movies have not been able to be for a very long time. Now, not all movies. I'm not saying this is the best movie ever made, but oh my God, just the the, the one thought I keep coming back to is this, this just raises the bar for everything superhero movies blockbuster movies animated movies especially just there really is nothing else like this and i'm including its predecessor in that uh, comparison yeah the word i would add is simply exhilaration because when i was watching this i had no desire to look away i had no ability to look away i was completely immersed and as much as I love going to the movies, as much as I love the stories and the pictures that we discuss, I'm not always consumed by them or I'm not always drawn into them. I do feel the urge to look at my phone or I do often wonder how much road is left ahead before I can get out and use the bathroom or head back home and go about my day. But I felt that I was pulled in by gravity to this this picture and when I left, I still wasn't able to process what had just passed before me. It opened me up to adrenaline, but also an emotional response. I was just completely reactive. I felt that it really pushed me beyond what I had expected. And exactly as you said, it really elevated exactly what these kind of stories can deliver. I think it matched the achievement of the first film. And I think it pushed beyond what a Spider-Man story can do, what a multiverse story can do. Uh, and I think that this is in the contention for best Spider-Man film in my rankings. It is absolutely in the conversation there. Without a doubt, I think this is the best Spider-Man sequel that has ever been made. At the very least, it is the best Spider-Man sequel since Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2. I know there is a lot of love for that, and I'm right there with everybody. There's such different movies, though. I can't say one is definitively better than the other, but when it comes to Spider-Man sequels, we have been starving compared to Spider-Man 2 and to Across the Spider-Verse. Anybody who watched my video on No Way Home, all almost 100 of you, know what I'm talking about there. <laughs> I'll have you know that I'm in that demographic. I was one of the viewers of that video, and I broadly agree with your sentiments. I thought that No Way Home was a swing for the MCU. I think that in, there were a lot of ways where it worked and a lot of ways where I you know, really enjoyed it. I think that broadly people really like it and people feel an attachment to it. But I think that it really fell short of what I, w I wanted. It did let me down. There were some things I was looking for, some things I would have liked to see that did not come through. So to see a film like Across the Spider-Verse really just come through and eat No Way Home's lunch. No Way Home followed up into the Spider-Verse, but it got its foot in the door of multiverse stories ahead of Across the Spider-Verse. But at the same time, I think this is a scenario where we can see how being careful and really crafting your story and making sure you're putting out the best product is completely vindicated as a strategy because that's when you get a masterpiece like this. Absolutely. And I 100% agree with your use of the word masterpiece there. The worst thing I could say about this movie now, having seen it twice, is it left me wanting more. And... And that's a pretty high bar to clear, I would say, especially if you've listened to any of my movie opinions for more than five minutes. So I know that you've been thinking a lot about this movie. You've now seen it a second time. Is there anything that you keep coming back to when you think about this film? Or is there anything that stands out to you with more clarity or that you see with new eyes now that you go in for the second viewing? Because I've only seen it the once. There is, yeah. Obviously, the ending is going to catch a lot of people off guard. Not everybody is going into this with the knowledge that I had that this was originally announced as Across the Spider-Verse Part 1 and Part 2. And now the third one is going to be called Beyond the Spider-Verse. But I don't think everybody who's going into this movie is expecting the cliffhanger ending that it leaves off on, especially not this particular one. And I know from my experience talking with a few people who have seen the movie that that is rubbing some people the wrong way. 
but I will push back on that firmly and say that I don't think cutting it off where it does is an accident. I don't think it's without deliberate intent because the thing that really struck me in the first few days after seeing this movie and confirmed on second viewing is what a mastery of complete subversion the story is not just of your expectations but of your assumptions because i kid you not everything this movie conditions you to believe when it begins is wrong by the end and i think that is an incredible display of storytelling control and restraint to not just leave its characters in this rock bottom but also slightly hopeful place but to literally question the essence of a spider-man story and threaten it with the most existential conflict we've seen in these kinds of movies so far i i think that this is a surgically cut first half of a story that i cannot wait to see the ending of okay so here's where i'm going to reveal my secret superhero identity which is the devil's advocate and I'm going to ask you now, Gilbert, as the devil's advocate, I've heard from some people who did not love this cliffhanger ending that they feel the movie is unresolved and that it undermines the story because many of the major arcs and questions, themes set in motion by the story do not fully conclude or they are left unaddressed at the time the film ends. Do you think that there's any truth to that? Do you think those people have a point? Or do you think, as you noted earlier, if they had a better idea, there was a part two imminently releasing, do you think that they would be more amenable to that decision? I think that if they released and marketed this movie as Across the Spider-Verse Part 1, a lot of people would have said, okay, so I can just wait until Part 2 comes out and watch them both. So they were kind of forced to change the strategy there a little bit. I definitely see where people are coming from, where they say that this movie leaves everything unresolved. And while I don't think that opinion is in bad faith, I don't think it's entirely correct. For one thing, there is one major resolution in this movie, and that is Gwen Stacy's relationship with her father. That is the conflict that starts the movie, and it is the one conflict that is resolved at the end. But everything else is unresolved. Everything else is changed, interrogated, subverted. And it can't possibly be resolved because it has only now just taken the shape of what the conflict actually is compared to what the audience and what Miles and what Gwen and all the other spider people believed it was at the beginning. I'm referring, of course, to this idea of canon events, these particular moments that are universal across all Spider-Men and Spider-Women that makes their stories connected as they are. Because I certainly did not expect the movie to take on such a meta angle on exploring this idea of a million Spider-Men in a million different Spider-Verses. But the way that it executes that is so incredibly deft and thought out that we literally believe we are watching one movie where Miles just wants to be accepted by the advanced league of Spider-Men and not one where he realized he is not just a threat to the Spider-Verse, but the catalyst of that threat. And I think people are going to look back on this a lot more favorably once Beyond the Spider-Verse comes out and they have the pull of the part that they have right now. It, it brings to mind for me how I felt at the end of Infinity War, where I was pissed off that it was going to end right there at the lowest moment. But now having seen Endgame a million times... I, have a, I look back a lot more fondly on it as here's what this movie sets out to do and here's how its successor kind of challenges that as a response. And, and I think that this movie is going to see something very similar. I believe in respecting the creator's choices and doing my best to understand why things are presented in the way that they are rather than pushing back against everything that does not fit my particular taste and sensibilities. So when I look at that and when I view Across the Spider-Verse from that more charitable angle, I like to think that 
they know exactly what they're doing here. I have a lot of faith in the creators. Obviously, Lord and Miller have their bona fides well established in filmmaking. I'm also a big fan of the director Joaquin Dos Santos from all the way back to the Avatar Last Airbender days. And I thought they very skillfully brought the film to an end. I did have the vague awareness that Beyond the Spider-Verse was coming. I wouldn't say it was something I thought about as I went into the movie, the same way I thought about how Endgame was following Infinity War when I saw those films. But I thought that the way that they concluded this story was propulsive and did leave us wanting more for the next film. But I certainly don't think that it left anything unresolved. I think that there are certainly questions that will play out in the next film. But I think that we did see a lot explored and a lot answered, as you said, the relationship between Gwen and her father. I also thought this film was incredibly consistent with how it delivered its themes uh, and has as has been noted, you know, elsewhere, the way that this story is also about belonging, that in a world of countless spider people who all have to conform to certain rules, Miles needs to feel that he belongs, has to find a way to feel that he is a true Spider-Man in a multiverse where people are telling him that he is anomalous. So I thought that that was really a very strong form of storytelling. I thought it created a very powerful emotional link between Miles' story as a character, the story of Miles as a Spider-Man and Spider-Person. And I thought this is what we always want from a Spider-Man story, someone who is fighting the greatest stakes to save the city, to save the multiverse, but at the end of the day, who has a relationship with real human beings that he has to sacrifice for because he loves them more than anything. So I thought that even when this film was being subversive, as you pointed out, and even when it was pushing the Spider-Man franchise farther than it's ever been, it also found a way to remain consistent to what makes this character so relatable and empathetic and successful in the same ways it was able to to push the envelope and push boundaries. Absolutely. I want to go back to something you said there about this idea of this sense of belonging and what Miles is kind of seeking throughout the film. And I want to kind of expand on that because yes, it 100% does start with this idea of Miles wants to feel he belongs with the other Spider-Men he met that he has no way of seeing again or contact when he realizes that there is this, as Gwen puts it, elite strike force of Spider-Man going throughout the multiverse. He wants to feel like he is validated in that respect. But also by the time the movie sort of reveals the man behind the curtain, he's basically offered that and rejects it. They tell him, this is what it is to be a Spider-Man. This is what has to happen. This is what belonging is. And now he has to not just question if that is what he really wants anymore, but also, is there anything he can do to stop it? Because the movie does make the argument that Miles has everything he needs to belong among the other Spider-Men. Like Miguel O'Hara, Spider-Man 2099, posits it himself with the movie's own logic. But he has to push back against that. He has to literally fight against what his preconceived concept of being a Spider-Man was. And most importantly, he has to find a way if there is anything he can do about it. Let's just spoil the rest of the movie here. Can he save his father or are some things fixed points in time? And I think that is why this film stands up as one of the best examples of multiverse storytelling that we have seen in the past several years, possibly if ever. It has become a subgenre of the superhero complex or movie making in general to incorporate a multiverse. It is increasingly common to see alternate realities and versions of characters and timelines. And oftentimes I wonder what the purpose of that is for the story, other than to add a certain level of pseudo-complexity or to allow for a certain deus ex machina and clever outcomes. But I think in Across the Spider-Verse, they are actually making the multiverse a part of the story, not so they can open and close certain doors at whimsy, but because they are trying to show the idea of what makes someone who they are. And as I watched the film, I thought it was a great allegory for the battles we have with ourselves. As Miles pushes up against someone like Miguel O'Hara, other versions of Peter Parker, 
across the many realities he sees from them what it means to be Spider-Man. In the original film, he learned from a Peter Parker how to be a Spider-Man. And they're telling him how to do one thing that he truly disagrees with. There are things that he wants. He, he wants to be with Gwen, but it pushes, he pushes back against it. The multiverse of different Spider-Men is really a reflection of the same individual. People that have shared traumas, that share values, that share burdens. You know, no one else can relate the way that these Spider-Men can to each other. And so when Miles has a conflict with someone like Miguel O'Hara, or when he has a rift with someone like Gwen, these are allegories for battles we have inside ourselves, or when we feel detached from ourselves, when we feel lonely. So not only inside of a coming-of-age story do we get to see these ideas of loneliness and, you know, how to be the best version of yourself, but also the idea that you have to do the hard work within yourself to figure out what it means to be who you are, how you are going to stand with your decisions, and what is going to motivate you at the end of the day. And to realign your entire perception of the world from basically your comic book level morality of good and evil, right and wrong, into something much more complex, much more nebulous, something a lot harder to pin down because... That is also what growing up is, is accepting that the world is a lot more complicated than we all wish it could be. And Miles is no exception. As a Spider-Man, as a biracial New Yorker, as a teenager, as all of these different things. And I think that is what's touched on so beautifully in the conversation with Rio that he has at the start of the movie, where she's saying how she worries that everyone's going to say he doesn't belong there, that he's not good enough, that he's not supported. I think that the movie does an excellent job of weaving that analog for adolescence in with its impossible universe-jumping superhero story. I thought the film also jumped off the page, so to speak, not only in terms of its visuals, which I want to talk about, but I think that uh, it made certain assumptions about its audience. I think that a few years ago, there would have been major questions inside a studio about whether or not an audience could follow this kind of multiverse story, and now these filmmakers are taking for granted that a mainstream audience, $120 million worth of an audience, can come out and enjoy a film that features different versions of the same character across multiple quasi-identical versions of a universe. But beyond that, there are certain elements of this film that are beyond the actual text. And I am thinking, of course, of this scene that comes probably about midway through uh, where Miguel O'Hara says, get Spider-Man! And all of the Spider-Men enact the famous meme where the Spider-Men point at each other. And I know how you felt about that because I was sitting right next to you when this played, but I thought it was hilarious. You thought it was hilarious. It was a great bit. It, it, um, it's hilarious. It is transparent fan service, but you know what? It doesn't hurt anybody. And I, I mean, what were they going to do? Not do that? <laughs> Yeah, and I thought it was definitely giving the people what they wanted, and it was just a very easy serve, but I thought that spoke volumes about how much they knew who was coming to see this movie and the type of person that would really resonate with this movie, because there was a lot of inside baseball here. You and I are people that are ruthlessly online and that have spent a lot of time in the trenches with these films. So of course we were going to see that and that was immediately going to spark with us. But it takes a certain type of person. And I, that might have been one of the more esoteric jokes. Uh, I thought it really worked. I know that that's been somewhat divisive for certain people. Uh, but I think these are savvy enough writers, savvy enough director to know that they can expect the audience to have certain knowledge. They can expect the audience to react in a certain way. And they can dial that up to their advantage. Gwen Stacy says, Gwen Stacy falls for Spider-Man in every universe. And it's a very touching, tender moment when she says it. But of course, many of us fans know that she's also being entirely literal when she says that. So there are all these moments where the filmmakers are winking at the audience and saying, yeah, we know that you know that there's a layer here we're not talking about, but that's why it's funny. I thought that was that was a quite a bold bold swing, bold of them to know, but I think it paid off. Definitely. The the Spider-Verse movies only exist and are only as good as they are in the context of every iteration of Spider-Man we have ever seen, both textually and subtextually. 
there is as much humor from from situational irony to the Spider-Man and Mumbatton saying no chai means tea, it's you're saying TT, all the way to these layered bits of dialogue that makes the experience of watching this movie so intellectually stimulating. Because if you were watching this movie from the angle that the movie is being written, you're bringing in so much Spider-Man spin-off and offshoot lore and knowledge into it, even if you've never heard the name Ben Riley before in your life. Hey everyone, this is Matt from the future with a quick little interruption here. Steve and I are about to start talking about the visual appeal of Across the Spider-Verse. If you've seen the film, you know that that's kind of one of the biggest talking points is the leaps forward it brings animated movies as a whole. But this podcast was recorded weeks before the information we know now about the conditions under which this movie was made came to light. Steve and I have nothing but praise for the level of care that went into every layer of this movie's visual achievements, but I don't want anyone listening to think that we condone or excuse the abusive working conditions that made that possible. With the information we had at the time, we believed the movie was made fair and square and ethically and took its time to make the product that it is. But we know now that that's not the case, and it would be wrong to discuss this aspect of the movie without acknowledging the reality that something that brings us so much pleasure can also have brought those who made it significant pain. Much like we support writers and creatives in the industry, that support extends to animators too, and I wanted to take the time here in the editing process to make sure that that didn't go unmentioned in the second half of our conversation. Thank you for your time. There's so much intellectual labor that goes into this film, and it, it is obviously something that we find richly rewarding. There's certainly a lot of other artistic, creative labor that went into the film, especially in terms of the visuals. As a work of animation, I thought that Across the Spider-Verse was exquisite. I had no notes for how this film looked. I thought visually striking has never been more appropriate as a label for a film, and I think Again, we see the importance and the value of taking your time to make something great. Because when you give incredible animators, incredible illustrators, uh, incredible filmmakers the time and the space and the resources to make great work, you get something like this, uh, which truly leaps off the page, leaps off the screen. And I feel it almost more as a collage, as just this more of a stream of images, a truly a moving picture. Incredible. It is unbelievable how this movie looks. The 4K Blu-ray of Into the Spider-Verse is one of my favorite things I currently own. It makes that movie look absolutely electric. I, But what these movies do, that before Into the Spider-Verse, we were not seeing any other animated movie do, is mixing different styles of animation in the same frame. And the thing about animation that makes it different from live action that really sets it apart as a medium is while everything that goes into a movie in one way or another is a direct choice to include or exclude, there is nothing in animation that is not a specific choice that takes a long time to make. Whereas in live action, you can see thing, you can see mistakes in the background. You can see little inconsistencies. You can see things that don't quite line up with the continuity. In animation, everything on the frame is something that was labored over for dozens, if not hundreds of hours. And I think what makes this movie in particular so special, special to me at the very least, but I think even superior to its predecessor is that there is not a single moment of this movie that is not made as visually interesting as it possibly can be. The team at Sony Animation and Pascal Pictures have gone above and beyond just adapting comic book vernacular into the visual medium of movies. Because the way that character emotions and interiority and themes and tone and setting are communicated through the rules they're allowed to break through animation, whether it's the background changing colors in Gwen Stacy's universe or just spider punk in general. We have so much more of an idea of who these characters are from how they are visually presented than we do just from the story that is happening. And 
this is what the animation medium has been missing for a very long time that we are only just now recognizing it can be. And I hope every studio, but especially Disney, especially Pixar, especially Illumination, look at this movie and say, oh my God, we have to step up our game because there's no reason animated movies can't all look like this. And we are finally realizing it. A hundred percent. A major reason why the film is so immersive is that you literally can't look away. There's so much density on screen for your eye to latch onto that you're just drawn in and you're drinking in every single image, every single change in the color palette, different visual styles coming together on screen and how they clash and blend. Uh, One fact that was pointed out to me is that Spider-Punk's jacket is animated in a different frame rate than the rest of the character, and that helps give (laughs) him that sort of signature look he has, or that appeal that he, that certain aesthetic, and no notes. That's the thing with this podcast, is just no notes. This movie Uh, is fucking amazing. So, they've done a great job there, Um, and I do want to dig in a little bit to what you just said as far as how studios should take notice of this film, because... At the box office, it's been a major success. Uh, I threw this out a little earlier, but it has debuted domestically to $120 million, 120.5 if we want to get all specific, making it the second highest grossing film of the year. I believe it's in the top five highest grossers of 2023 so far. So very, very successful. Very, very great run. It has already passed Into the Spider-Verse's entire box office. Yeah, uh, Into the Spider-Verse opened at $35.5 million, uh, so this film has opened three to four times larger, uh, and it's already, like you said, eclipsed its entire box office run, so Sony's got to be popping the champagne, everybody's patting themselves on the back for a job well done, and deservedly so. They, they have earned it, they have earned it. And I'm sure that other studios will want to replicate some of this success. Animation, in general, has been thriving at the box office. At the end of 2022, we saw the release of Puss in Boots The Last Wish, which was a phenomenon, and it had a spectacular run in theaters. uh, A very, very high earner late in the game for 2022. Uh, This year, the Super Mario Brothers movie has earned a billion dollars, and now we have Across the Spider-Verse opening to 120 million and it has a lot more uh mileage left to run so why do you think that right now we're seeing such a explosion in animation in this interest in animation and what lessons not do you think will studios learn but if they want to do it right what should they learn what do they have to learn as for why we're seeing the animated movies that we're seeing now for one thing There have been animated movies releasing every year for as long as there have been movies, almost. You and I grew up in the era of every year there is a Pixar movie, every year there is a DreamWorks movie, from Shrek to Toy Story to Bugs Life to Despicable Me to Megamind. This has been a constant in our lives. At first, they were appealing to us, and now they're appealing to the people younger than us. But that interest has always been there. Why they are so popular right now, I think comes down to the complete exponential explosion of media consumption over the last decade, over the era of streaming and social media, of FOMO, frankly. But as far as why the movies that we're seeing now are becoming so successful beyond just inflation is the people like you and I who grew up watching All those movies I just listed are now grown and are making animated movies that they would have wanted to see when they were growing up. People like you and I are now entering that space in Hollywood where animation can be used to tell such incredibly moving stories. And not to say that the older generations have never really appreciated everything that the medium has to offer. But but there has been a sense of not needing to take animation seriously as a form of media. But now with all the different movies and TV shows that we're seeing being explored through animation, I think we're finally opening ourselves up to the idea that animation is not just for kids. I think a little bit of our generation is Brad Bird's Revenge. Uh, (laughs) I think that we grew up watching, I'm going to throw it back to the Iron Giant, which is very near and dear to my heart. 
but certainly The Incredibles, Ratatouille, all of his other great films. And the passion and the evangelism, to say the least, that he has for animation has carried over into many of us. And I think especially on TV, uh, animation, quote-unquote, for adults has been and remains thriving. The shows that come to, to top of mind, I'm sure you could add and, and listeners could add, but certainly Bojack Horseman, Rick and Morty, just these shows that are very much for an adult. Uh, I know that you're a big Harley Quinn guy. You like Harley Quinn. Uh, yes. You know, so there are... Uh, I, I watched on your recommendation also Inside Job, which was good. Sadly canceled at Netflix, but... There are. I'm still mad about that. <laughs> uh, but there are these these great shows on animation that are are continuing to push the boundary and do great things with what this medium can offer. And so it's only natural that we see that on the film side, and especially with something that can tap into the comic book aesthetic so perfectly. I think that you and I do not claim any particular expertise in the nuances of the comics at large, but it is fascinating to see comic panels come to life on the screen we've seen superhero films and ncu films that have channeled comic book imagery in their cinematography of course but we are really seeing them copy paste not in that they're not actually creating assets or doing a lot of hard work here but really just recreating the imagery we've seen in comics or or that made people love this character that made this character iconic uh, and to show those different versions of the character, they're showing us how this character has evolved. They're showing us how all of these visual styles can coexist incredibly. And so this movie is a grand tour for Spider-Man, but it's also a world's fair for animation, showing us all the different styles of animation and what can be done with animation as a Trojan horse inside this superhero film. Speaking of creating assets, I read somewhere that I believe 17 different new tools and instruments and softwares were created just to animate the character of Spot, which is mind-boggling to me. One, because that character is a feat of animation in and of himself, but also might be the best comic book movie villain of all time? Question mark? Uh, question Spot, you mean? <laughs> I, I, I do not, no. Gilbert, I think it's safe to say that you and I are both really big fans of this film. I am excited to go and see it more and more and to make it a, an even larger part of my life. I can't wait to buy it on 4K Blu-ray. Yeah, it's going to be gorgeous. Uh, are there any other final notes that you want to hit or any points that you want to make sure we shared with the listeners? Yeah, the one thing that I wanted going into this movie coming out of Into the Spider-Verse is just more Gwen Stacy, more Spider-Gwen. Steve... You know more than almost anybody how strong my love for Haley Steinfeld is. I think she's absolutely wonderful. And she now has not one, but two different vocal performance characters who, to me, are just some of the most fascinating, well-written characters I've ever seen. And I don't know if that's because she picks great projects or because she just elevates these characters with her performance. But between Vi from Arcane and Gwen Stacy here, she has such talent. She has such range. She brings such a warmth and a love to each of these characters. And I, I think she's truly incredible. Her and Jason Schwartzman as Spot were the, the two performances that really stood out to me in this movie. Jason Schwartzman especially because I can't name more than one movie he's been in besides a Wes Anderson film. So I had no idea he was capable of this, but he's absolutely perfect. Spot is absolutely fantastic. I can't wait to see him in uh, more of his holes in the next film. Uh, very Can you stop excited. talking about your holes? You're making all of us uncomfortable. <laughs> really, uh, there are very few moments where a film has vocalized exactly how I feel before, quite <laughs> like that. Uh, I really, I really felt seen and, and heard. Before we leave this topic, I, I of course have to ask Gilbert: uh, in the version of the the Spider Verse where you exist, what type of Spider Man are you? Oh, I'm obviously Peter Parked Car. Okay, okay. Uh, I'm I'm more of a Lego guy myself, so I'm Very like nice. I'm Lego Spider Man or Spider Man that would help people who drop their Lego. I would make sure it doesn't break. One question I do want to leave this topic off on because this is the question that has been keeping me up at night since I saw this movie: Is the story better if he saves Jeff or if he fails to save him? As in, are some things unable to be changed? 
can he really not save everybody? Are there some things that a Spider-Man must be, or he is not Spider-Man? Or can he make his own fate? Does he have the ability to change what's written? Can he actually have it all? I genuinely don't know which one I think. I'm leaning... If Jeff doesn't die, then somebody else is. Like, I think I think Rio's a possibility if he saves Jeff. Like, it will be some kind of equivalent exchange in that respect. But I really don't know what I think is going to be the better resolution for this character. If he can save everybody or if he can't, because no Spider-Man can. I'm feeling very literally speechless because I can't predict an answer to this question. I think that Miles has the ability to be the master of his own fate if he should decide to push as far as he can. We've seen in this film where he uh, disrupts canon events and where things that are supposedly immutable change in the presence of Miles, who is himself... uh, like Neo, uh, a variance in the Matrix and someone who exists somewhat outside the normal rules. Uh, so I wouldn't put it past him that he can save his father. Whether or not he can save his father, I think the more fundamental question is, what does he take from that relationship? Even when Spider-Man is not able to save... Gwen Stacy, Uncle Ben, the Captain figure archetype, uh, that loss or the lesson imparted by that character in their final moments has a very profound significance on Spider-Man. So I would say this film has been about him belonging, about the relationship he has with his parents and what he takes from his parents. I would wonder how they want to close that loop. Not how they're going to kill him, but what lesson they want Miles to learn from his family. And I think that will be the key to this this question. That's very well reasoned, and that is kind of the thought that I left off on with, with the cliffhanger, is Miles from Earth-42 is the Prowler. This is who he becomes without his father as his guiding hand. And I think that's a very interesting dynamic we can, we'll get to explore in Beyond the Spider-Verse, but I genuinely don't know what that lesson is going to be. I don't, I don't know what that takeaway is going to be. I, I've, I'm kind of always erring on the side of tragedy when it comes to superhero stories. I think that the harder we can make their lives, the more interesting stories can be told. But these movies are so strongly about family and Miles' connection to his family and how they make him who he is. It's hard to imagine that he can't save him. But I would also never accuse this movie of just going for the saccharine happy ending of he gets to save him after all and everybody w- and everybody wins. I'm going to have to sit with this for a little while because it's a great question. Like I said, kept, you, kept me up at night for a week. Yeah, it's obviously a question Sony is hoping we'll pay $16 for in a year from now to, to figure out. 21 for 3D. Mm-hmm. And uh, don't forget about IMAX. We live in hell. <laughs> Well, honestly, that's a great segue to something I know that you wanted to discuss today as well. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, I don't really have much for our water cooler segment except to to say, stay hydrated out there, everybody. I'm going to take my sip right now. Uh, But Gilbert, uh, there was something that you shared with me that gave me fresh cause to gouge out my eyes and put out my ears. Yes, Steve. My God, I hate being right. Universal and Illumination are very close to closing a deal to make a Legend of Zelda movie, if not next, then following their Super Mario Brothers movie sequel. And it's difficult to put into words how opposed to this I am. The Legend of Zelda is the series that that the Nintendo has the strongest love for, that Nintendo fans have the strongest love for, that there is the most consideration of story and theme and tone to them. And based on their current output, I do not believe that Illumination is up to that task. I'm sure this is coming. I'm sure it's going to make a billion dollars regardless. I'm not excited for it at all, but it'll be a roller coaster to watch it take shape. That all being said, on our Super Mario Brothers movie podcast, I, I iterated my talking point that that movie was cast by, in, as I put it, an algorithm. That it was a list of the most popular, trendy, 
non-controversial, bankable stars in existence at the time, and they just grafted them onto whichever characters they felt they fit. With the exception of Jack Black, of course, who is perfection in all things. So, that being said, I want to put my money where my mouth is. And I want to say, if I'm right about the Mario movie, then this is who I'm predicting as the cast for the Legend of Zelda movie, if it's going to be as generic and uninspiring as Illumination's last outing. So, first thing I'm going to state outright is... Given the amount of creative control that Nintendo has and will continue to have over the, how their work is presented, I firmly believe that this Legend of Zelda movie will be an adaptation of the Ocarina of Time. That'll be the first version of this that we see. So with that in mind, this is the cast that I am anticipating them to announce, and I invite them to prove me wrong. Tom Holland as Link. Aquafina as Navi, Sydney Sweeney as Zelda, Michelle Yeoh as Impa, either Keanu Reeves or Jason Momoa as Ganondorf, Millie Bobby Brown as Ruto, Samuel L. Jackson as Darunia, and Hiroyuki Sanada as the Deku Tree. Again, Universal, prove me wrong. And if I'm right about this in five years, I expect some financial compensation. Gilbert, you know I'm here for you. You know I always wish the best for you, but I've never had a more burning desire for you to, to be wrong about something. I really hope this flames out because this would be a crime <laughs> against nature. This would you be so both. awful. I have read the same report and article that you have, and if this is in fact moving forward, I think that this will do undo all the goodwill and actually backlash harder than the 1993 Super Mario Brothers movie did against Nintendo. And I'm not here to make wild proclamations that are completely insubstantiated and speculative and that might blow up in my face, but... Excuse me, Steve! But I just don't see how Illumination can deliver the goods here. Because most of their films are almost self-paradizing. Even when they're creating their own IP, they're almost making a joke about their own sense of humor or their own tone or what they've done before. And that might work for Mario, who is a character who is constantly variable and iterative and who is always kind of just hopping from, from place to place and universe to universe. But the Legend of Zelda is a much more grounded story. It's much more deliberate. It's much more rooted in, in mythology and history. It's careful with its themes. Uh, it has a very distinct artistic sensibility, unlike the, the gels that Illumination squeezes out for everything. I would hate to think about the needle drops they would force into a Zelda film, because oh, I think that they would try to recreate the basic images of the game and then tell you how you're supposed to feel about the story through other cultural references or or jokes i don't think that fans will respond well to this at all it's one thing to have illumination do a mario movie aimed at kids for a legend of zelda movie even when they are childish they are a little bit more intelligent than mario and I think that there's a lot more of an artistic sensibility here. I mean, guys, the obvious answer is go Studio Ghibli. Zelda itself has... DreamWorks! I, I mean, I would prefer to see a live-action film, because here's what I'll refute for you. If they have a animated Link, you don't need a voice actor. He doesn't talk! Just, I don't... They didn't need one for Mario, either. I know. Look, you can hire a guy who's gonna do, like, Yeah! Hey! But other than that, I don't want to hear it. Like, I don't want them to come in and I would rather have some more auteurist or artistic director who can find a way to speak volumes with silence or who can find a way for the character to really feel represented by Link than for someone who's going to just try to fill his void with standard issue quippiness. I think that this film would rip the soul out of one of the most soulful products Nintendo has shared with us. I think that even for their Pokemon movie, they went in a live-action direction, and that worked pretty well, thinking specifically of Detective Pikachu from 2019. So, 
I really don't want this to happen. And it's almost sinful after the release of Tears of the Kingdom, which is such a a gift and a treasure that they would think of defiling the sacred texts of Zelda with such a, a partnership. I, I don't think this will work out. I don't want this to happen either. There is an opportunity here for Illumination to step up their game, show that they can play with the big time storytellers at DreamWorks and Disney and Sony. But based on their current output right now, this is not the studio to take this project. And I hope I'm wrong. I hope that it will be as intense and focused and character-driven and frankly dark as the Zelda timeline has been and authentic as it deserves and is not a joke a minute, needle drop, pop culture references, lowest common denominator, highest possible profit, cash cow. Illumination has not given me reason to believe that that is something they are capable of. Yeah, I did go and see the Super Mario film, and I thought it was fine, but I thought it only succeeded when it could make me think about, you know, when I had played Mario, or why this reminded me of Mario. I That's not the experience I want from Zelda, because that's not the experience I, I've had with Zelda, so I am speaking as a fan here, as much as I'm speaking as any kind of critic, and... I'm a bit shocked because Nintendo is famous as a a producer of games for taking their time, delaying so that they can make revisions and get things right. And they obviously have very particular ways that they want their stories to be told and interpreted and experienced. And they can retain however much creative control they want. But I'm almost stunned that they would think Illumination is the vehicle that can, can... express Zelda on screen. They clearly know what they have. I don't know why they think Illumination, what they see in Illumination, in terms of an ability to translate that. I hope they come to their senses. I think there's better options here, and not just to follow in the footsteps of a recent and a cheap win. I I hope that they kind of wake up and smell the coffee. I guess it's just going to be a question of, is it really just about the money or is it about their artistic vision? Because Illumination is the fastest way to make a billion dollars with an animated movie, but it's not the fastest way to make a great movie. Well, if there is one thing I know about Zelda, it's that we can change the timeline. We can go back and we can try to prevent this from ever happening and stop evil from rising. So perhaps this is just the beginning of our journey. I'll get right on that. All right, Gilbert. Well, I think that we're going to put this one in the history books. It's been great talking to you today. And it leaves me even more excited for what we have left to cover this summer. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for subscribing. And remember to subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, And today, for Audience Surrogate, I am Steve Vieira. And I'm Matt Gilbert. And it has been our pleasure to talk to you guys. Take it easy.